two or three of you asked for tapes of the Wednesday night session because you couldn't be here. Colleen didn't have time to make the additional tapes, but she did make a circulating tape. So the circulating tape is there in the tape box from the Wednesday night. And uh, for those who ask for copies, you'll get them, but Colleen didn't have time to make them. Our first two sessions on Revelation were kind of sliding into the book because the first occurred on Palm Sunday, the second occurred on Easter Sunday, and the lesson writer divided the lesson material into Revelation and then celebration of these two Holy Sundays. So today we come head on to the book of Revelation, beginning with chapter 4. Now, the lesson writer, for some reason or another, skipped over chapters 2 and 3. And that was unfortunate because actually chapters 2 and 3 has to do more with our understanding of the situation in which Revelation was written than any other part of the book. We reminded ourselves last week that this was a troublesome time for the Christian church. Domitian sat upon the throne and he was persecuting all who were Christians, all who were spreading the Christian gospel. And it was under Domitian that John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. When we began the book of Revelation in chapter 1, John first went into a trance and experienced his first vision. He envisioned Christ, the Christ of the after-resurrection. The kind of material that Revelation is is full of imagery and symbolism that makes it extremely difficult to understand what he is really trying to say. It appears that in the first chapter that what he is wanting to do is to portray the nature of Christ after the resurrection, giving him those visible qualities that would reflect the spiritual qualities that he possessed to make it more easily understandable, one of which was the two-edged sword that came from the mouth of the risen Jesus. We talked about the symbolism of each of these characteristics that John outlined when we talked about the nature of Christ. Then Christ said, in view of the twelve of the seven lampstands that stood about him, that they represented the seven churches of the Middle East. And he said to John, write down what I have to say to you and pass it on to these seven churches. That was skipped in our lesson material, but I'm going to pause there just briefly so that we can get an idea of what Christianity was like during this period in which John was writing. We pointed out that John was the head of the church at Ephesus. Tradition says that after the death of Jesus that John took Mary to Ephesus where they lived. On her death, she was buried there. John 
was the head of the church at Ephesus, and there were seven churches there in that area over which he had responsibility. The first of these was the church at Ephesus itself. We talked on another occasion about the nature of the city of Ephesus. It was the prize jewel of the Roman Empire. It was a free city. That meant that the Rome was so pleased with the city that they did not impose upon them the same strictures that were imposed upon the other cities. They had a great deal of freedom. But that freedom was expressed through pagan religions and attitudes and habits. It was a sinful city. The primary religion of Ephesus was the worship of Artemis, and a magnificent temple was built there in her honor. Paul, when he went to Ephesus, ran into trouble because of those who were worshipers of Artemis, and he had a great difficulty in bringing Christianity to this city. But it responded to Christianity amazingly well, and the church had grown there and had, and had prospered. When given instructions as to what he was to say to this church, it was mostly positive, except that they had lost the strength of their original love. There was not the same excitement that there was in the beginning. There wasn't the same tenacity that they had shown in the beginning. Although they were to be complimented for their holding fast to the gospel, rooting out all of those things that were not scriptural, the various heresies, and that they were incorporated into a community that showed strength and perseverance. But they needed to renew themselves to renew their allegiance. This was to the church at Ephesus. To the church at Philadelphia, so named because of the nature of the city, it was the youngest of all the seven churches that Paul, that John addressed. And they were complimented on the fact that even though they were new, that they were young, that they were holding fast to the gospel as it had been presented to them. They were to be complimented and encouraged. Then the third church that John wrote to, Laodicea, was the church that he was most critical of. He said to them, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or wish you were cold, one or the other. But what I can't stand is the fact that you are neither hot nor cold. You are just sitting there, neither direction being pursued. And I would rather that you reject Christianity or accept Christianity than to be lukewarm about it because nothing will come of that lukewarmness. He is very critical of the church at Laodicea and he incorporates in that one letter however one of the most beautiful pictures that occurs in the book of Revelation and that is where Jesus says tell them that I stand at the door and knock 
I'm not leaving them without someone to turn to. If they want to move out of their lukewarmness, if they want to reinitiate their enthusiasm, I'm standing at the door, ready to enter. All you have to do is open the door, and I'll come in. The commentary on Revelation at this point pointed out that Holman Hutt, in painting a portrait of Jesus standing at the door and knocking, shows a door that has no latch on the outside. The latch is on the inside, so that if the door is opened, it has to be opened by the one on the inside. And that is a strong assertion that goes throughout all of the Christian history. Christ does not impose himself on anyone. It is always an act on our part in accepting him. And we can reject him just as easily as we can accept him. This is what the people there were doing. I stand at the door. Anytime you open it, I'll come in. Now, these three brief illustrations gives you some idea as to where Christianity stood at this particular time in history. The early part of the ninth decade of the first century of Christianity. It was growing, but it wasn't on fire. Those into whose hands it had been put were not living up to their potential. But one reason for that, it was because of the persecution. They were not exerting themselves in the way that they would if they had complete freedom to do so. But they knew that if they were overt in their Christian living, that they would fall under the hand of Domitian. They would be persecuted. And many of them held their religion close to their breast for that one reason. That's what Paul, excuse me, Paul keeps getting in here for some reason or another. That's what John was trying to say in the book of Revelation. Hold fast. This is a time of battle between good and evil. This is a time of battle between God and Satan. And it appears at times that evil is on the throne. Sometimes it appears that if the devil is on the throne. But this is to assure you that it is only for a brief time that this indecision appears. For in the final analysis, good will persevere. In the final analysis, God will persevere, and all these other things will be put under his feet. So having said that to John, to write these to the seven churches, John moves in into the second part of his vision. Now, if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you can choose one of two ways to do it. One is to take it literal and try to make sense out of the fact that these things being described are beyond our comprehension to really visualize, but they were visualized by John. Or you can take it as John's way of expressing what was not visually literal, but the aspect of what he had seen could be expressed in words that were visual to the reader. Both are incorporated in the study of, of Revelation, dependent upon which quarter you stand in in understanding why the book was written. 
mainline theologians and mainline biblical scholars say that it is symbolic and it is not to be taken literally. And that the times for which the book is written are the times in which the people are living and not to be projected down into the future for some future people to interpret for their times. An example of that is during the time of the Protestant Reformation, the beast of Revelation appeared in the minds of many as being the Pope at Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. From that time until the present, every generation has identified the beast. Hitler was a beast. I can remember during the time of World War II when the imagery of 666 appeared in political cartoons. Hitler was looked upon as the beast. Stalin was looked upon as the beast. More recently, the United Nations has been looked upon as the beast. When you try to identify in this way, you're just circulating in an era in which you have no understanding, in which it cannot make sense. If you take it in the sense that John is visualizing something and putting it in words that are visual, when they are to him spiritual, then it has a strong spiritual power in it. Our lesson writer has chosen the letter, and for that reason I will teach it the way in which he has taught it, because I don't know anything about the book of Revelation. I've told you that from the beginning. I've stayed out of it. <laughs> if I don't have certainty about something, I don't talk about it. I'm, I'm really hard on myself to be sure that any time I make a statement, I can back it up. I never give something off the top of my head that I don't have assurance that this is truth. And the book of Revelation, either way you take it, still is a book of mystery. It has not been accepted excitedly by the, by the church at any time. Martin Luther put it as an addendum to his Bible, in fact. But there are beautiful expressions in there that can be uplifting, and many Bible scholars laud it for its beauty and its spiritual truth, and we'll try to find that out. But don't hold me accountable for anything I say, because I'm seeing what the writer said. He knows I don't. He says that John went into the second phase of lapsing into this expression of spirituality in which he envisioned heaven. He said, in the spirit, I entered heaven, ruling out the fact that he physically had been transported to heaven, but it was in his spiritual imagination that he had entered into heaven. He begins by saying that the door to heaven was opened. And the voice of the one whose voice sounded like a trumpet said, come in and I will show you what is to come. This is an expression to John of the fact that we are living in a difficult time, but don't despair. Times are going to be better, and I'm going to show you how they're going to be better and why. We saw last week what Jesus was like, seated upon standing among the candlesticks. Today, John says he was ushered into heaven and he stood before the throne of God himself. 
he described God. Of course, Jesus said God is spirit. We know that to be true. But John visualized him in the attributes that we know about God that God wanted him to transport to the churches and the rest of the people who are persevering during this difficult time. God is all-powerful. God is seated upon the throne. The throne is used throughout Hebrew literature as exemplifying the power of God and the power of the king who sits on behalf of God in the nation. And so it's the first step of John is to portray God seated upon the throne where he reigns over all of creation. There is optimism in that appearance of God. There's a rainbow that surrounds God. The rainbow is symbolic in the Old Testament of the promises of God that he would be generous with his people, that he would not destroy them. You can ask, seek only good from me and not anger. The rainbow expressed the nature of God as he sat upon the throne. Around the throne were gathered 24 persons seated in thrones in white robes with golden crowns. Scholars have insisted that 12 of these represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The other 12 represents the 12 disciples in the Christian era, which is the imagery saying that the old and the new have come together, no longer in conflict, and they are together in the kingdom with God. The promises of the old are not lost. The promises of the new are vital, and the two come together. The 12 disciples, the 12 tribes of Israel, seated in their thrones, places of prominence, places of power, because of the roles that they played in the development of the relationship and reconciliation to God. And there are four creatures around the throne, one described as a lion, one described as an ox, one described as human, and one described as an eagle. The ox is the worker. The works of the kingdom are honored by God. The lion is the king of the jungle. The power of the gospel is expressed in the imagery of a lion that can overcome all of its enemies. The human represents humanity in its efforts to understand God and to become accepted by God. And the eagle, one that soars mightily in the skies, keen sight, surveying all that is and claiming it for the one who sits upon the throne. They have wings to carry them wherever they need to go. They have eyes all over so that they can see all that takes place. And they always sing praises to the one that sits upon the throne. Holy, holy, holy to the one who sits upon the throne. It is an act of worship. John is being told worship is the atmosphere of heaven. Honoring God, kneeling down before God, giving obedience to God which needs to be transported to those who have not yet come into the kingdom in their relationship with God, to as people of worship, people who recognize the 
greatness of God and of his power and of his will. And as they sing these great praises to God, those 24 who are seated on the thrones prostrate themselves before the one on the throne, taking off their crowns and laying it at his feet. Even the greatness of the greatest in the presence of God kneel down to him in humility, take off the crowns that have been granted to them in putting them down down before the one who sits upon the throne. It is a vision of the throne of God, those who are in the inner circle of God, and the purposes that they fulfill in the kingdom that is coming. John says, in the end, the kingdom will prevail. Everything will be put under his feet. Are there any comments or questions? Comments are invited. Questions are discouraged. <laughs> yes. I have one question. When a, when a former Christian church, most of the people involved in that, uh, Jews who converted Christianity or the Gentiles? The, up until the year 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, Christianity was a Jewish church. And the Christians worshipped in the temple with the Jews, just like they did before they became Christians. After the temple was destroyed, then there was a dispersion. The Jews and the Christians were dispersed. The Jewish who lived in Jerusalem maintained their Jewish faith. The Christians moved out and perpetuated Christianity. And by now, it's mainly a Gentile church. Like John, he was a Jew, but, then, but he became a Christian then. Yeah. All of the 12 became Christians. And the earliest converts were Jews to Christianity. Jesus came to the Jews first, and then the rest of the world. Did the scripture say anything about the persecution of the believers that while they were still worshiping? No, but, but Paul was. When Paul came back to the temple to bring the offerings, uh, the Jews tried to kill him. But uh, the uh, Jews were, were well accepted by the, I mean, the Christians were well accepted by the Jews in their temple worship. No indication that there was any hostilities, except for the leaders who were trying to sway people to become Christians. Any other? So this, this lesson today was primarily that John envisioned this, or did God tell him what this was, or how it would be? Is this just what he was dreaming of, what the heaven would be like? Apparently, John went into a trance. Spiritually, he was lifted up to heaven, not physically. Okay. Spiritually, he, this is what he said. The door was open. Come in and I'll show you. And what he describes here is just simply the throne room. Yeah. No prophecies, no uh, uh, interpretations of theology. It's just simply God sitting upon the throne, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples. Incidentally, I did not mention the fact that of the four beasts, 
in the second century, Irenaeus said that the four beasts represented Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. And if you look at the coat of arms of the four, you'll see these represented on their coat of arms, the, the four beasts. The lesson was mainly around how, how to worship God. How to worship. Yes. <laughs> Putting God in perspective, too. Yeah. Because if we don't put him in perspective and if we try to worship in our own way, some way, we'll miss mm-hmm. it. Straight or worship other things. More than anything, it was to say to the people, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. It's, it's, it's a book of reassurance. Yes. Is your theory that some people take it so literally and um, try to form it into prophecy of what's happening and what will happen just from Revelation? We as mortals delight in puzzles. <laughs> and it's just it's just a game of trying to to make it something mysterious and to just like the Da Vinci thing that's going on now, trying to uncover the Da Vinci mysteries. But there's just something in us that likes to see riddles and puzzles, <coughs> excuse me, and interpret them. <coughs> Thank goodness my time's up. <laughs> I'm, I'm not leaving. <laughs>